The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We are studying the book of Mark together. We're in Mark chapter 7, and uh, it's a message of entitled, Not Them, Not Them. First of all, if you were the guy in Meg's on uh, Tuesday night, I owe you an apology. Uh, I was wiping my eye. I'm getting a lot of mileage out of this eye thing. I was wiping my eye, and uh, the couple across from us that were having dinner with us said, uh, your eye is cockeyed. So once again, it's looking over here. I went in the bathroom and uh, tried to straighten it out. wouldn't straighten out. So the only option I have is it's like a contact. You pop it out. And uh, as soon as I'm popping it out, I'm holding an eye in my hand, and some poor dude walks into the bathroom, (laughs) turned around, walked out. I tried to find him to say... So if you're that guy, I'm sorry, uh, it doesn't happen that way every day. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 20. You imagine how scared that dude was? He, I, couldn't, I walked in the restaurant to find him and apologize. He was gone. He was long gone. Verse 24, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and she said to Jesus, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having departed her. What in the world does this mean? Because of her response, because of her response, her saying, even the dogs feed from the crumbs under the table, Jesus saw her faith and responded to her. Father, as we look at the word, we desire to see it, know it, understand it, and then apply it to our hearts and lives. So we pray now, as we open the word to look at it, that you would teach us. We pray that our hearts would be changed, our lives would be changed. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Do you have anybody in your life you can't stand to be around? Don't raise your hands because they're probably sitting, they could be sitting next to you or could be sitting across the room. I mean, really, you've got anybody in your life you can't stand to be around. Raise your hand. Just one person in the whole world you can't stand to be around. Yeah. But we all have that person, don't we? Joyce Landoff wrote a book years ago called The Irregular Person. She talks about that in her book. Now, some of you are saying, Gary, uh, you need to change that from singular, somebody I can't stand being around, to plural, somebodies I can't stand being around. I've got several of those people in my life. Gary, when they show up, I go, oh, no, not them. Not them. If I find out they've been invited to a family function, my first thought is not them. If I find out they have been invited to go with our group to dinner that we normally go with or to travel with us, my first response is not them. Gary, when I hear that that person is going to be somewhere, my thought is, oh God, not them. When I walk into a room and I see that they're there, my thoughts are, not them. I mean, not them. I, I don't want to be around them. I don't want to associate with them. I don't want to hang around with them. I don't want to have lunch with them. I don't want to have dinner with them. God, not them. Got anybody like that in your life? 
Hey, we all do. George Bernard Shaw and Winston Churchill, Sir Winston had a rivalry gone among one another. They were actually friends, but there were times when uh, they couldn't stand one another. Shaw was opening a new play. He sent this uh, letter to Winston or envelope to Winston. I'm enclosing two tickets to the first night of my new play, Bring a Friend, if you have one. (laughs) Sir Winston responded, cannot attend the first night, will attend the second night if there is one. (laughs) Who is the not them in your life? Who who is that person or group of people you think, Lord, not them? The Jewish people have been commissioned by God to be light in the lost world, to be be setting captives free, to release people from the prisons of darkness, to be missionaries to the nations. We sang songs this morning about the nations. We sang songs about being light into the world. Think about the greatness of our God reaching to all people. This is what God told the nation of Israel. I, the Lord, have called you into righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. So God's instruction to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was to go and fulfill the Great Commission, basically. Go to the nations. Go to all peoples. But their traditions told them the opposite. The, 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 the scriptures themselves said go to all people, but by the time of Christ there was an utter disdain and utter dislike and utter hatred for the Gentile people that God had said you were to go and to minister to. You were to go to them and open the eyes that are blind to free them from prisons and to release them from dungeons, those who sit in darkness. The, the command of God in the Old Testament was you to go to all the nations, but the reality of it is the Jewish people hated the Gentiles. And likewise, the Gentiles, because of that, had a disdain for the Jews. And so here the Jewish people were given this command by God to go and to be a light into the world, to release them from the prisons they're in, to to get them out of darkness, to do all of these things, but they could not stand these people they were to be missionaries to. In fact, they considered the Gentiles unclean, they considered them uncouth, they considered them unlovable, and they considered them people they would have nothing to do with. Their response to the Gentiles was not them. Not him, not her, not them. We will not go to them. So then comes along Jesus. And Jesus does a remarkable thing. He ministers to the Gentiles. He he goes out and he ministers to the Gentiles. He, He goes to their towns. He actually touches them. I mean, that's like when you were a little boy in the second grade and you wouldn't touch a girl or a girl wouldn't touch a little boy. and say, You would say, he has cooties. We're not going to touch him. I mean, and, and there was this disdain. And so Christ would go into Gentile regions and he would go into their towns. He would touch them. He would heal them and he would love them. The, the context that we're looking at today in Mark chapter 7 has to do with this. You know, you think, Gary, what are you talking about? It's because that's what Mark chapter 7 is about. It's about Christ entering a Gentile region and ministering to the Gentiles. Mark is all about geography. Mark Mark was a living GPS. If you go through Mark's gospel and read it, you have geography all over the place, and it certainly is true in verse 24. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us. Not many of us have been to Tyre. Some of you may have been, but uh, we don't even know where that is. But here's where it is. If you look at this map of the nation of Israel, basically here's what you see. Here is the Dead Sea. You can see my pointer over here. The Dead Sea, the Jordan River runs up here. This is the Sea of Galilee. Christ was headquartered in Capernaum right here. 
Jerusalem is down right here. So you've got Jerusalem, Dead Sea, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee. Here is Tyre. Tyre is an area of the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians. That may not mean a lot to us, but the Phoenician area was a Gentile region. It was a Gentile region. He would leave that region, and if you look at verse 31, he went out from there in the region of Tyre and came through Sidon. Sidon is the area just north. It's a Mediterranean sea coastal town, and it's the area north of Tyre, Tyre, Sidon. And from there, he went to Decapolis. Decapolis would be this region over here. All these regions are Gentile regions. So Christ is headquartered in Capernaum, right here in the Sea of Galilee. He takes off on a mission. The mission brings him to three Gentile regions, Decapolis, Deca, 10, Palace cities, 10 Gentile cities. We've met Decapolis once before. We met it when Christ came on the shore, the, the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He was confronted. You remember the guys were in a, in a storm at sea, and, and they hit another storm when they hit the seashore. They hit this guy who was filled with a legion of demons, and the demons were cast into what? Pigs. Jews did not raise pigs. Gentiles did. Decapolis was a Gentile region. So Mark is very careful to point out to us that Christ is headed to three different Gentile regions as we look at Mark chapter 7. So tuck that in your minds. That's what we're going to look at this morning, where Christ went and why he went to those places. He goes to Tyre, Sidon, and Decapolis. Now back to verse 24. He went and he entered a house. You know, sometimes you read the scriptures, you don't think carefully about what you're reading. It's a Gentile region. More than likely, it doesn't say for sure, but more than likely, Jesus entered a Gentile home. Now, that does not mean a whole lot to us, but that was something a Jew would never do in that day and age. Certainly not a Jewish rabbi. Certainly the Jews would not expect their Messiah to ever enter a Gentile home. He's in the Gentile region. Perhaps he's in a Gentile home. And while he's there, the crowds find out that he's there. He wanted no one to know of it. Christ needed some rest. He didn't want anybody to know about it, but wherever Christ went, it would be like a Hollywood figure or a sports superstar in our day and age. Wherever he goes or she goes, people follow him. They find out about it. They want to see him. They want autographs, etc. So they find out that Jesus is there. He wanted no one to know, but he could not escape notice. After hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. Now picture this. He's in a home. He's trying to get some rest. And a woman barges into the home because she has a sick daughter. Specifically, her daughter is filled with a demon. There's something wrong with her daughter. She is a desperate mama. Mamas, when you get desperate, when your sons and daughters are in need, it may be a sickness, it may be a disease, it it may be that some little junior high girl has picked on your little junior high girl, it it may be whatever it might be, you're a desperate mama, you're going to do anything. You're like a mama bear with a cub, you're going to do anything to protect that son or daughter. Amen, ladies? Amen. And that's the situation here. She, she has a daughter who is hurting. She has a daughter who is filled with demons. She's going to do anything. So she barges into a home where Jesus is. She comes in, and look at what she does. She throws herself at his feet. In fact, if you look at verse 26, it says she kept asking him to cast out the demon. Now, this, uh, this episode is written uh, or recorded by Matthew as well. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 15. Listen to what it says there. Behold, a Canaanite woman came from the region, began to cry out, Have mercy on me, son of David. My daughter's cruelly demon-possessed. He did not answer her with a word. His disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away. She is shouting out after us. 
You see, when you look at the words keep begging here, it's a present progressive. She is begging him over and over and over. She is making a nuisance of herself. She is so desperate that she's crying out to Jesus and the disciples saying, let's get her out of here. Listen, you ever been around a desperate person before? I mean, they're not going to take no for an answer. This mama is not going to take no for an answer. And so she is in the presence of Christ, crying out to him over and over and over. Tim Keller, in one of his books, writes these words about her. Though she's Syrophoenician because of Tyre's proximity to Judea, she would have known Jewish customs. I showed you on a map where Tyre was. Tyre is right there, that region. It's close to the region of Judea. And uh, because of that, uh, she would know some of the customs, but not everything of that area. And so she knows the customs. She knows that she has none of the religious, moral, cultural credentials necessary to approach a Jewish rabbi. She knows she has no right to approach a Jewish rabbi. She's a Phoenician. She's a Gentile. She's a pagan. She's a woman. And she has a daughter who has an unclean spirit, which would make her unclean. Everything about her goes against the norm of Jewish culture in that day. She knew she had no right to come to a Jewish rabbi. She knew she wasn't qualified. She didn't have the credentials. In the previous section, if you were with us last week, it was quite interesting. The Pharisees came to Jesus and they were mad. Do you remember why they were mad? They were mad because his disciples were not keeping the traditions of the elders. Not that they weren't following the word of God, but they weren't keeping the traditions of the elders. Specifically, it says, they were not washing their hands before they ate. But they weren't doing that. I told you, I thought my mama made up that verse that you had to wash your hands before you eat, but it was actually the traditions of the Jews. And, and they were all upset. They were all mad because the disciples were not following the traditions that they had laid forth. Not that they weren't following the word of God, but they weren't following traditions. This woman comes and she's, she's a contrast to all of that. She could care less about the traditions. She could care less that she was a person who was not qualified. She could care less that she was not of the religion she needed to be, of the moral character or the cultural credentials. She didn't have any of that stuff. She was a desperate mama who believed Jesus could heal her daughter. She came with great faith. She, she didn't know and understand everything that the Jewish leaders knew and understood, but she believed Jesus could do the impossible. Keller goes on. He says she knows that in every way, according to the standard, she's unclean and disqualified to approach a devout Jew, let alone a rabbi, but she does not care. She enters the house without invitation. She falls down. She begins begging Jesus to exercise a demon from her daughter. The word beg is a present progressive. She keeps on begging. Nothing and no one can stop her. Ladies, you have been there. Men, you've been there. There's desperation that sets in when there are desperate times in your own household, and you beg God. I'll never forget when our son was two weeks old, we were in Dallas. We had just finished Dallas Seminary, and uh, he got a fever one night. And since he was a second child and Sarah was only two, two-year-olds get fever once in a while, we weren't too concerned. But he's, uh, he's all of uh, two weeks old, so we called the, the, the hospital and talked to the pediatric nurse on duty. Uh, our two-week-old uh, has 103 fever. What should we do? Come straight to the emergency room right now. Long story short, he ends up with, uh, with spinal meningitis, viral spinal meningitis, two weeks old. We were desperate. We were desperate. They, they, I mean, we didn't know what that meant. We, we were uneducated medically, and, and all we knew is it sounded really bad. These were long words we didn't understand, and that uh, they were going to do a spinal tap, 
and that uh, this could be really serious, and they laid out all the things that could happen, and he, he, could, he could become deaf, other things could happen, and we began to bake. We were desperate. We're desperate. Our son was in need. We were desperate. You ever been there? Desperation sets in. In a discipleship journal, the author is Larry Libby. His wife is dying of breast cancer. She's 49 years old. He wrote an article called Praying from the Edge. Praying from the Edge. It's one of the best articles I've ever written, ever read. He writes, prayers from the edge know nothing of stained glass reveries or kneeling at the bedside with soft shafts of morning light coming in while you're on your knees. Prayers from the edge are not prayers you learn in Sunday school or at your mother's knee or in Bible college. Prayers from the edge don't associate, in my mind, with music and laughter and peace. But when I prayed from the edge in desperation, it was closely related to despair, raw fear, and nausea. A prayer from the edge is more like a sob, a burst of frustration, a sigh of loneliness, a cry of anguish from the very marrow of your bones. See, some of you have been there. You've been in the midst of desperate times. Your marriage is falling apart and you scream out to God. The diagnosis is poor. Believe me, I've been there recently and you cry out to God. Your kids are struggling, and maybe they're prodigals, or maybe they're struggling in school, or maybe they've been diagnosed, and you wonder if they'll ever be able to, to do the things they need to do. And, you know, and, and so you, you become desperate, and desperate people do desperate things. My prayers will be like this woman. You see, some desperate people, they turn to the things of the world. They, they turn for another snort, and they turn for another high, and they turn for another lover, and they turn for, to all these things rather than turning to the living God. And this is a desperate woman who clings to Jesus. She comes to Jesus, and she casts herself at Jesus, and then Jesus responds to her. It's an interesting response, isn't it? I mean, what do you do with this? What do you make of these words? She, she is there, and she's begging Jesus, and Jesus says to her, let the children be satisfied first. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the docks. What? This is the Savior of the world? This is the compassionate, caring Jesus? And he looks at this woman and he says, uh, why are you coming to me, basically? I mean, I, I, I've got children I have to feed first. We, we, the, the children eat first and... I, I can't throw the bread of my kids to the dogs. I mean, what do you do with that? Well, you go home and study and come back and tell me next week. How's that? Now, I'll unpack it for you. It's quite interesting. It's a parable, obviously. Jesus is using a story to tell a truth. It, it's a parable. The children, he divides those children in Matthew chapter 15, the parallel passage, the children, the nation of Israel, Israel's children. Let the children be satisfied first. He's talking about priority. He says, I've come to my people first. He went to the Jew first, the Jew first, then the Gentile. You see, he came to show that he was the fulfillment of the promises of the word of God and the fulfillment of the prophets and the fulfillment of the priests and the fulfillment of the kings. And he was the fulfillment of all of that. And so he's basically telling this lady, he said, I've got to go to the lost sheep of Israel first. That's what he says in the parallel passage. And then he says, uh, after I feed them, 
I, I can't throw you, or he says, I'm going to feed them. To, to, I'm going to give the children bread. I, I can't throw that to the dogs first. Now, it's interesting. Jesus uses the word for dog. That's not the common word that's used for dog in the New Testament. By the way, in the first century, dogs were not pets as we have them. They were seen as scavengers. They were seen as wild. They were seen as unclean. Jews often called Gentiles dogs because they were unclean as well. Christ doesn't use a typical word. He uses a diminutive word, the word that would refer to household pets. Some Jews had dogs as household pets. Not many, but some did. Egyptians did more so, and that's the word that Christ uses. And and so basically, I think what he's saying here to this lady, he's saying, you know how families eat. First the children eat at the table, and afterwards their pets eat too. It's not right to violate that order. The, 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 the pets must not eat the food before the children do. That's basically what he's saying. The children being the nation of Israel, and then he's referring to the Gentile people after that. And, and I, I love, there's a commentator I'm reading as I study through Mark and preach through Mark, William Lane. And, and Lane says, it's amazing that this lady matches wits with Jesus. She understood the challenge. She understood what he's saying. So she fires back at him and says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the crumbs of the children. Basically, she looks at Jesus and she says, I understand. I am not a Jew. I'm not from Israel. I I don't worship the same way in the same place. Therefore, I don't have a place at the table. I accept that. But, but, I may not have a place at the table. But because of who you are, there's more than enough on the table for everyone in the entire world. And I'll accept what you give. That's what's packed into that statement. So here, how do you know that? I mean, how do you interpret that? Because over in Matthew, you know what it says? In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus looked at this woman and he says to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Your daughter is healed. Wow. Here is a woman, one of the least likely people in the entire New Testament time. She's a Gentile Syrophoenician living outside of Israel in the land of Phoenicia who who has no right to come to a Jewish Messiah, but she comes out of desperation begging. Christ speaks in this parable. She's really the first one to understand a parable in the Gospel of Mark. She understands what he's saying, and he looks at her, and at that response, which is somewhat veiled to everybody else, and he says, your great faith has cast that demon right out of your daughter go home she's okay and we scratch our heads and say what what and then mark piggybacks another story onto that story he talks about this woman with a story to tell now he talks about a man with a story to tell to tell so so pick it up pick up in verse 31 and again, he went from the region of Tyre, came through Sidon, and he went to Decapolis. There's Decapolis. And when they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, they entreated him to lay his hand upon them. So this man is deaf and he doesn't speak well. Now, I don't know, you know, verse 33, I'm going to tell you, we read this in staff. Sometimes when we read the scriptures, we don't picture what's happening. I want you to picture verse 33. So Jesus took him aside. That was a kind thing of Jesus to do. He didn't want to make the man a public spectacle. So in verse 33, he takes him aside. What's the first thing Jesus does after that? What's it say? Puts his fingers in his ears. Have you ever thought of what that would look like? Here's Jesus gone, whoop. What's the next thing he does? Read it to me. He spits and touches the guy's tongue. I don't know about you, but that's pretty unorthodox. 
I mean, all of a sudden, Jesus puts his fingers in the dude's ears. He spits and touches his tongue. And, and he, he looks at the guy and he says, Epaphora, be open. In verse 35, his ears are open and he speaks plainly. What in the world do you do with that? By the way, sandwiched in between there, I, I didn't read it to you. It's the only place in the scriptures where God sighs. Look, look, look at verse uh, 34. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh. If you write in your Bibles, underline that. The only place in the scriptures where God sighs. I, I don't know what to make of that sigh. Is it a sigh of frustration? A sigh because of his suffering? A sigh out of... I, I don't know. The scriptures don't explain it. But I can tell you, it's the only place... I chased it down this week. The only place where God sighs. Creation sighs, Romans chapter 8. We sigh. The Spirit groans for us. Same word used there. Only place where Jesus sighs. I, I don't know what to do with that, but there it is. Why did he do it this way? How many, how many of you kids have a children's bulletin out there? We pass out children's bulletins. Here's what our children's bulletin looks like this week. I, I mean, that's what happened. So what's the point? Come to it in a minute. I think it shows us that the hungry, it's not the hungry seeking for bread, but the bread seeking for the hungry. It's not the sad seeking for joy, joy seeking for sad. It's not emptiness seeking fullness, but it's where the fullness that is Jesus seeking those who are empty. And it's not merely that he supplies our need, but he himself is the fulfillment of our need. Jesus went and sought this man. They brought him to him. Jesus sought him and, and, he, and he healed him. Then in the next section, you see multitudes that are cared for. A multitude is cared for. The 4,000 are fed. And then after that, you see that the Pharisees come up to him and they say, show us another sign. So you've got a Gentile woman being healed, a Gentile man being healed, 4,000, I'm assuming most of them are Gentiles because it's in the region of Decapolis being fed. Then the Pharisees showed up and they argue. I I mean, if you drop down in chapter, chapter 8 to verse 11, the Pharisees came out and they began to argue with him. They want another sign. So here's my question for you. What's Mark doing? I mean, Mark is putting together a gospel to teach us. He's trying to teach the people who are reading a first century and us centuries later a point. What's the point? What's he trying to do? Well, I, I think two things. First of all, I'm going to back up. He's showing that Christ is indeed the King of the Jews, the Messiah. You see, in Isaiah, it said this of the Messiah, he will open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy, water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So I think the first thing that Jesus is doing is showing that he is the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah's prophecy of who the Messiah would be. Jesus is saying, I am he. I give sight to the blind, I give hearing to the deaf, those who can't speak now speak, and so I am indeed the Messiah. But I think it's more than that. I think Jesus is also teaching that he is not only king of the Jews, but he's savior of the world. He's not just king of the Jews, he is savior of the world. Gary, what do you mean by that? He's not just king of the Jews. He's showing that because he is doing the things that the Jewish prophets prophesied of, and so he is a fulfillment of that. But more than that, he's a savior to the world. 
You see, he's, in, he's ministering in, in the Jewish region, then he goes to the Gentile region, the Gentile region, the Gentile region, Tyre, Sidon, Decapolis, and then he goes back where the Pharisees are, and what we find is Jesus is ministering to all people because he's a God, he's a Savior for all people. Now, when the Jewish people would have heard where he had been and who he had gone to and what he would have done, their response would have been, not them. Our Messiah doesn't go to those people, not them. The Jewish Messiah wouldn't go to Gentile people, not them, not them, not them. He doesn't feed Gentile people. He doesn't go into the homes of Gentile people. He doesn't touch Gentile people. Did Jesus have to touch this guy to heal him? Of course not. He could have healed him at a distance. He could have healed him up close. But the response of the Jewish people would have been, not them. Not them. Not them. So let me go back to my first question. Who's in your not them group? Not them. Not them. Those prison and people deserve what they're getting. I'm not gone to them. Not them. Those Democrats are liberal God-haters, I'm not gone to them. Those Republicans are bigoted gay-haters, I'm not gone to them. Those rich white people, they don't want to hear from me, I'm not gone to them. Those Hispanics that won't learn my language, (laughs) I'm not gone to them. Those black folks that won't work, I'm not gone to them. My neighbor who is too uppity and won't give me the time of day, I'm not gone to her. Those stinking longhorns, those Aggies. <laughs> I'm not going to them. When I was a uh, second semester freshman, or I'm sorry, second semester sophomore at LSU, two dudes moved down the hallway from us. I lived in South Stadium. Literally at LSU, what they did when I was there, they had built dorms into the stadium instead of all the ramps and all that on the outside. It was there. Uh, two things I remember about that. Number one, there was no air conditioning. And so you imagine Baton Rouge in the summertime or starting in August when you went to school and, and then in May, no air conditioning, you put box units in your window. So the first thing I remember, no air conditioning. Second thing, the guys above me smoked pot at 10 o'clock every night. And so it would whip all that stuff right in there and you get high even if you never smoked pot. So it was an amazing thing. <laughs> I never inhaled, not one time. But, but here, here's, here's, here's what came to my mind this week. I was thinking, God, who's the not them in my life? And I remember my second semester at LSU, sophomore year. These two dudes moved down the hallway. And uh, that, they were a little different. That, they were nerds before we had the word nerd. I mean, they, they were, you know, nerdy dudes. I mean, you know, dudes like that. I mean... I'm a guy who loved playing ball, loved hunting, loved fishing. I, I like to do stuff with guys, but man, men's type of men. And these guys were probably English majors, you know. They, they probably took botany courses or something like that. I, I, you know, I, they, they were not manly kind of guys. And uh, so we, you know, we teased about them. Spring semester, we had a really good softball team, and, uh, and, and we would tease about them. They were different. I, I don't think they were gay. They, they were just different. And uh, they, they were not manly dudes. They were not. 
And, and so the guy who was uh, discipling me at that time, his name was Walter, and he said, you know, Gary, I, I, I notice you tease about those guys all the time, and you don't really like them, do you? I didn't answer that. He said, uh, I think you need to find a way to get to know and minister to them. <laughs> I went to my dorm room and said, you're nuts. I, I don't want anything to do with those guys. Hey, they, they, you know, they probably sit in the dorm rooms on Friday and say, they probably don't go to football games. Can you imagine that? I don't want anything to do with those guys. So I didn't tell Walter that, but I didn't. I didn't want anything to do with those guys. And so I'll never forget, there was a day when I went in the cafeteria. Usually there were a group of us. We all ate together, and I don't know what happened, but my group was not there. And those two dudes were sitting at a table in the cafeteria. And, and this was weeks after Walter had talked to me and said, I thought you ought to get to know those. Thank you ought to get to know those guys, et cetera, et cetera. So this battle went on in my life. I, I, I'm holding my tray. I see those guys there. I don't see my buddies. And I'm thinking, I really need to go sit with those guys and get to know them and talk to them. And then I thought... <laughs> Not them. Not them. I I wish I could tell you that this story had a happy ending. I I wish I could tell you I went and sat with those guys and I took botany courses after that. (laughs) I, I didn't go sit with those guys. I didn't want my friends to walk in and see me sitting with those guys. I wanted nothing to do with those guys. They were not manly dudes. I, 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 didn't, I didn't want to be around them. I didn't want to get to know them. I didn't want anything to do with them. So I didn't. I didn't. I have no idea what happened to those guys. One of them is probably the CEO of some Fortune 500 company now, and the other is probably a Ph.D. English teacher somewhere teaching people. I don't know. Who knows what happened to them? I don't even know their names. But I'm in my office preparing the sermon this week saying, God, who's the not them in my life? And that whole scenario came flooding back over me. Okay, what's that about? And who else is there? That's the not them. Who's the not them in your life? Father, I pray. As we look around and say, not them. I don't want to minister to them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to be around them. When they walk into the room, we go, not them. When they show up for family events, we say, oh, God, not them. Thank you for a Savior who didn't say, not them. Thank you for a Savior who reached behind the borders of Israel and reached out to the world. He's a Savior who gave his life for you. In his mind, you're not one of them. In his mind, all people can come. And he invites you rich, poor, black, white, yellow, green, doesn't matter. Educated, uneducated, doesn't matter. The Savior invites you. Part of his kingdom through the forgiveness of sin that he died on the cross for. And if we were honest, all of us have a group of people we label as not them. And, uh, or maybe not him or not her. And we avoid them, we run from them, and we don't like them. God, protect us from our own prejudices, our own fears, our own callousness. 
Help us to not be like Israel, who said not them, but to be like the Savior who died for all. In his name, amen.